And let's open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. As I mentioned in adult Sunday school uh, earlier uh, today, um, between um, the Thanksgiving service next week and the holidays and our monthly prayer service, uh, it would have been hit and miss to be in the book of Exodus. And we would have had to have a sermon and then take a couple weeks off and then have an Exodus sermon, take a couple more weeks off. And um, I feel like it would have been hard to kind of retain the flow for us. And so um, decided that we'll pick up Exodus after the new year. Uh, we'll get through the holidays and pick it up there. I told the folks in adult Sunday school, don't worry, we got them out of Egypt. Um, they're well on their way. We haven't left them uh, hanging in captivity. And so they're out and rolling, and so we're going to give them a little break, and, um, and we'll pick up that story uh, here in about a month and a half. And so uh, we will look forward to that. But today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15. We studied kind of the first half of this um, story uh, in adult Sunday school. And if you weren't there, I would encourage you to listen to the recording and maybe that will create a bit more full picture for you. But this is Genesis 15. Let's pick up our reading in verse 1. And we're going to read the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he, that's Abram, Believed the Lord, and he, that's the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage? And would you give us grace to apply it to our lives? Help us to really live out this scene before you and over you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've had this experience before. There's been something that's been bothering you. You've been thinking about it, but maybe thinking about it more than you even realize that you've been thinking about it. And then suddenly, some innocent soul happens upon you and asks you about that thing. And what happens next is a surprise to both you and them. Frustration and pent-up emotion starts to flow out of you almost instantly. The person you're talking to kind of throws their hands up in the air. They, and, and you find yourself apologizing. I didn't, mind to, I didn't mean to jump down your throat. I'm so sorry. And the upshot of it is you are surprised at how much this thing had begun, had begun to bother you. You were surprised at the emotions that you had pushed down. And once given the opportunity, they came flying out of you. And you weren't even sure why it happened. 
I think all of us have had that experience at least once. Probably more often than that. This is what happens here. Except the two people talking are God and Abram. And Abram is going on with life, and God comes to him and says something to him, and suddenly out comes frustrations that Abram has been building up, storing up, and this pent-up emotion and energy that comes flooding out of him. And frankly, he speaks dangerously close to irreverently to God, and God just is so kind. God listens, and God makes some promises. So let's walk through this story with Abram, and I think we're going to see something really important. There are things in life that I call the whatabouts of life. Here's what they are. God comes to you and says, I, I want to bless you, or, or this, is, this is the promise that I have for you. This is the promise of salvation. This is the promise of sanctification. Some promise comes your way. And you want, with all your soul, to reach out and take it. But then you say to yourself, what about that? What about this thing in my life? How does that interact with the promise that I've just heard? And we look at the promise and we leave it there. We don't reach out and take it because of the what about. What about that? What about this? What about the other? God is going to address a giant what about in Abram's life. Okay? We read this at the very beginning. God comes to Abraham in verse 1. He says to him, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So, that raises the question. What are these things? Also, when somebody comes to you and says, stop being afraid, what's the implication? That you're afraid. So God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I don't want you to be afraid anymore. And we have to ask ourselves, what was it that Abram was afraid of? Well, it's all bound up in that phrase, after these things. Let's draw in our minds a little compass. Okay, North, south, east, west. Where Abram is right now in this world, west of him is the Mediterranean Sea. Can't go west. Can't go west unless you want to live in a boat. Let's go south now. We learned this morning in adult Sunday school in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20, that Abram had gone south into Egypt and told this white lie about his wife. He said, she's my sister, and his sister agreed to it. Pharaoh takes her in, steals her, kidnaps her, and then showers Abram with gifts for a dowry, trying to buy her off of him. And suddenly Abram has come into hordes of ill-gotten wealth, and Pharaoh gets wind of it and finds out because his house has been plagued. He does some investigation and realizes that Abram and Sarai aren't brother-sister, they're husband-wife. He's furious. And he expels them, sends them out of the land with a full military escort. Can Abram go west? No, it's the Mediterranean Sea. Can Abram go south? That's Egypt. And that is off limits to him now. Now let's go north on our compass. Let's go north. 
In Genesis chapter 14, we're told a story about a man named Chador Laomer. Chador Laomer. That's a long name, but Chador Laomer was a big bad king. And he had four other kings of smaller kingdoms, and this was a giant empire, and they were a big and mighty and powerful, huge army, and they were lords over that entire region. There were five kings down around where Abram lived that got tired of paying taxes to Chater Laomer. And so the five kings rebelled against Chater Laomer. And Chador Laomer thought, okay, well, I got to collect my taxes. So he gathered his army, and all, remember, all these are north of Abram. He gathered his army along with his three other allies, and they went marching south. And you know, it takes so much energy and time and effort to marshal the army that if you're going to get the army together, you may as well take over a few other nations while you're at it. And so that's what they did. And they hit, if memory serves, 12 or 13 different cities along the way. Imagine going to Leighton and putting into your pockets everything there you found that was valuable. And then go to Syracuse and do the same. And then go to Roy and do the same. Then go to Ogden and do the same. Roll on up to West Haven. Do the same. Head over to Brigham City. Do the same. Don't you think you could collect quite a bit of stuff of value? That's what Chater Lamer did. One of the things that he collected on his military campaign was Abram's nephew, Lot. They got everything they could get, and they started headed back north. And Abram marshaled a little militia of 318 men. And he surprise attacked Chater Laomer's horde at night. They thought they were being attacked by a much larger army. And they took off and left all of their stuff there. Abram has just chased off the big bad bully of that region. Then he took the stuff that they left. He gave 10% of it to the king Melchizedek. And then he went with it over to the king of Sodom. That's to the east of Abram. The king of Sodom said, give us the people and you take all the supplies. And Abram proceeded to offend Bera. He says, I will not take a shoestring of your stuff. Because it will not be said that the king of Sodom made me rich. And he gives it all back. So now Abram is sitting there, isolated and alone. He can't go south. He got expelled from there. He can't go west. That's the Mediterranean Sea. What happens if the big bully on the block figures out Abram only had 300 men? And even if he had all of that stuff to buy off Chater Laomer, he gave it all away. And Bera isn't happy with him because he received an insult along the way. Abram is isolated. 
Abram is worried. Abram is afraid of the future. Abram feels like he stepped out for God and now he has nothing to show for it. He's a wanted man. He's afraid for his life. And he doesn't have anywhere to go, does he? And so God comes to him and says, Abram, stop being afraid. I am your reward. He says there are, when God comes to him with this outlandish promise, which is what we're calling it, God responds to these things that Abraham was afraid of, and God is emphatic. He says, I myself, I myself will be a shield to you. I myself will be your reward. It's personal. Abram, you've trusted me, and I'll continue to protect you. Your 318 men, do you really think you could have chased off Chaderlay armor with just those? I was in that. I protected you, and I will continue to protect you. I promised you that I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Abram, I've got you. And God takes it on his own shoulders. And God makes him even bigger promise. He says, I will be your shield. This word shield is used, of course, in military context. It's any old shield. It can be a big shield, a small shield. But the word shield is often used poetically to mean, well, just that. It's the idea of a shield, but it's more than that. It's a shield that's also a benefactor. Maybe you've watched the old crime movie, an old crime sitcom or something like that. And there's a guy who's a suspect. And the police go and talk to them. And wouldn't you know it, he's the governor's son. And he's deemed untouchable because of his powerful connections. He's shielded by his powerful connections. That's the idea. And God says, I will shield you. I will be your benefactor. I will keep all these other things from happening to you. And then God says something extra special. It says here in our translation, he says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, my translation has a little footnote, and I think most modern translations do, because there's two possible translations here. And... Uh, Depending on the Hebrew scholar, um, in fact, most Hebrew scholars say it's 50-50, we're not sure, it can be both. Um, and a translator obviously has to make a decision. But this can be translated, your reward shall be very great, or it could be translated, I am your very great reward. Okay. I, th I think the context, just language, it's 50-50. But I think context causes me to prefer the second one. You've given all the riches, the vast riches away, and insulted the king of Sodom in the process. You blessed King Melchizedek with 10% of what you took. You're worried that you can't buy your way out of any future trouble, and I just want you to know that you've gotten more than stuff. You've gotten me. I am your very great reward. But remember back at the beginning, I told you that sometimes in life, you're so pent up with a particular frustration. 
There's a fear that you're having. There's a struggle that you're having. It's an ongoing relationship that's nagging at you. Something like that. Some persistent ache that just keeps gnawing at your soul. It doesn't seem like there's any end to it. And then suddenly, some innocent soul comes along and taps it. Out flows all that frustration. Well, that's what happens here. Now, God wasn't innocently doing it in the sense that he knew what was in there. And God was drawing it out of Abram. Out of Abram. His name hasn't changed yet. And when Abram hears this promise, his thought process goes like this. How can I trust that you're going to be my shield? How can I trust that you're going to be my great reward when for 20 plus years your promise to me has gone unfulfilled? How can I trust you when you haven't yet kept your word. That's what Abram is saying. Abram has this complaint against the Lord, and I want you to notice that this is a double complaint. Twice, Abraham says, behold. And twice, it says, Abraham said. I think what we can take from this conversation, and maybe you've had a conversation like this in the past. You speak to somebody and they they vent their frustrations. And it's so clear that you really can't speak anything into the situation at the moment. And they gather themselves, walk around for a minute, shake their head, and then out it comes again. It's really bothering them. And they didn't get it all out the first time. That's what Abram does. And I want, you to, I want us to notice that as Abram is venting, He lays the blame straight on the Lord. He's personal. He says, you, you have done this. He he says, you are the one that has not fulfilled his word. In fact, Abram uses a rather stark uh, word here. He doesn't necessarily say, you've made me childless. He says, you've promised me an heir, and a member of my household is going to be my heir, an adopted person. He says then, You said it would be a a biological son. That hasn't happened yet. He says, and I walk around naked. That's the word that he uses. Not childless, though that can mean that. This word isn't used all that commonly, but what it's most oftenly referred to is a person who is being stripped of their clothes against their will. This is the case of rape. Clothes are being stripped off against a person's will. They're now naked. That's a pretty heavy complaint to lay on the Lord, isn't it? You stripped me. I've stepped out for you. You tell me you're going to be my shield. You tell me you're going to be my reward. Yet this promise goes unfulfilled. I walk around on this promise, and the promise hasn't come. My dear friends, 
God has very wide shoulders. God doesn't have shoulders. God is a spirit. But metaphorically speaking, he can take it. The only thing that he asks is that if you vent this way on the Lord, that you stick around to hear what he has to say next. And that's what Abram does. And God begins to talk to him graciously. And now let's look at God's impossible provision. God says to him, God tells him something that's equally personal. He says three times your, you will have a biological son. Your biological son will be your heir. I will fulfill this. It will happen. You've walked and waited for a long time, and Abram had a little bit longer to walk and wait. This wasn't going to happen the next day. In fact, I think it was still about a decade more before the Lord fulfilled this promise. But there was still some time to wait, but God says, I will surely do this, and I will do this for you. Abram got personal with God, and now God turns it and begins to get personal with Abram. And then God does something so gracious, so kind. This is at night, apparently. And he, he says, Abram, come on outside with me, bud. Let's have a look at some things. And they walk outside, and he says, Abram, look up into the stars. Number them if you can. Now we know that he couldn't possibly number them, just as we can't possibly number them. I had the opportunity one time to go to Hawaii. Uh, we went to the big island, and they have a mountain in the middle of the island called Mauna Kea, memory serves. Long, long drive up to the top. They had snow at the top, believe it or not. We got up there, far away from city lights, far, far away from California, far, far away from Tokyo, and I saw the most beautiful sight of stars. It didn't look like we see stars, little individual dots. It looked like clouds of stars in the sky. Abram would have seen something like that. No city lights. No lights to impede his view. And he would have looked up at the vast array of stars, and God said, Number them if you can. That's as many as your offspring shall be. What God was doing is giving him a perpetual object lesson. Abram, when things get dark in your soul, walk outside at night and look. And there you'll see my promise visualized for you again. There are dark times. And God wants us to look up. To see his hand. Something really beautiful happens here. 
Abram sees the stars, and it says that he believes. And now God is going to speak to Abram's faith. It says in verse 6 that Abram believes God. Again, this is a translation that could go either way. My Bible has a footnote that says it can say Abram believed God, or it can say that Abram believed in God. I would prefer the second one, because I think what the passage is communicating is that Abram is looking past the promise, he's looking past the difficulties, to the person who's promising it. I know it's a subtle difference, but it is a very, it is a difference. Abram now sees God as his shield, as his reward. He sees God as the person that can make these things happen. Now, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? That's a word that's commonly misunderstood these days. You know, you'll, you'll go to a, a high school uh, basketball game and you'll, you'll see the cheerleaders hold up signs that say, we believe in you. Well, you can believe in me all I want, all you want, and my basketball skills, but I'm 5'7", and I can't jump, okay? Believe in me, if you will. It's misplaced faith. Belief is not hope. It's not a, nor is it a leap into the dark. Belief is not having a bunch of things that you're concerned about and saying, well, I guess I'll go ahead and believe that because it's what I got. Belief is far more active than that. It is, it, the idea is to entrust yourself, to bring yourself under the benevolent hand of this person and to put the weight of your entire soul on this person and this person alone. I'm entrusting myself to you. You guys have known this trust. You, I think of times when my, my kids have gotten sick or gotten hurt and I have to pick them up and take them to the urgent care, to the emergency room. In that moment of pain, they're, without question, they trust dad. Dad's going to get me where I need to go. The doctor comes in and performs what they need to do and there's absolute trust that this doctor has their best intentions in mind and is going to get to the bottom of the problem and help them. They've entrusted themselves. And that's the idea. Abram says, you know what? You are my great reward. You are my shield. You are my God, and I believe in you, and I'm entrusting myself to you. I'll keep walking around this country as long as you want me to walk, knowing that I can't go north, south, east, or west, because you're here, and I'm going to put myself where you are, trusting that you'll protect me and keep me and guard me. Yes, he had the promise. Yes, he believed that promise. But more than that, he came to find the person making the promise to be trustworthy. And when Abram does this, when Abram says, believes in his heart, when he entrusts himself, I want us to notice verse 6, that God moves. It says that God counts it to him for righteousness. The Apostle Paul takes off on this in Romans chapter 4. He says, all of you who think you can be saved by doing something, 
read Genesis 15:6, Abram believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He says, notice, he did this, he was counted righteous before he was circumcised. There's no such thing as baptism back then. Abram was counted righteous before any religious rite could be performed. He was counted righteous simply because he believed, simply because he entrusted himself to God. And when he did that, when he entrusted himself to God, God moves toward him and makes a decision. God makes an active decision. It says that he reckons him to be righteous. Let me explain what that means. It means that God makes a judicial decision. God says in his heart, from this time forth, forevermore, I regard you as righteous. From this time forth, forevermore, I regard you as just. God covers your sins, past, present, and future. And it's as though every time you go into the presence of God, he says, hey, wait one second, let me pull this out. Oh yes, I wrote it down right here on my judicial activities. You are just. You have every right to be here. No more separation, no more condemnation between you and me. I have reckoned you to be righteous simply because you've entrusted yourself to me. That's what God does. This is the argument that the Apostle Paul takes up in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. The just shall live by faith. What's more, does it sound impersonal to you that God would make a judicial declaration to call you righteous? That does to me. A judge in a courtroom making a decision that's binding for future things. But it's not personal. God answers that too. Because we're told in James chapter 2, verse 23, that when God reckons Abram to be righteous, he also reckons him to be his friend. Abram is called the friend of God. When we entrust ourselves to God and say, God, you are capable, you are glorious, you are magnificent, I believe in you. I believe that you can do what you'll say. I believe that you'll be my shield and my great reward and I'm entrusting my life to you. When you do that, God not only puts on his judicial robe and takes out his gavel and declares you forevermore to be righteous. God, in a sense, takes off those robes, those trappings, and he moves towards you just like a friend would. And he wraps his arms around you. He brings you into his confidence and forevermore, you will move forward in relationship and friendship with God based only on your faith. That's what God is saying here. God is a friend of sinners who entrust themselves. He's a friend. Let's take two lessons from this passage. Number one, trusting God means that we look past the whatabouts. We begin to see those whatabouts not as hurdles getting in the way of God's purposes, but the very tools that God uses to accomplish those purposes. 
When I was uh, entering college, did you guys like to know a little secret? I went to college as a physics major. There was one problem with being a physics major. Would everybody like to know what that problem was? The problem was that I wasn't any good at physics. <laughs> Every aptitude test I've ever, I'd ever taken said, you know, Greg, you're really not very good at math. <laughs> but I wanted to be good at math. I wanted to be good at math. Every aptitude test I ever took said, you're good at language. I didn't want to be good at language. I, I don't know. I thought that was for like poets and guys who didn't do athletic and sportsy things. It was, that wasn't the vibe I was hoping for. I get to college and suddenly I'm faced with math classes that I wasn't either prepared for or capable of doing. And in the scope of life, that's a minor hurdle. It was a minor thing. At the time, when I was 19, it felt very major. It felt like a hard pill to swallow. Why can't I excel in this area? Or, more to the point, I keep hoping every year, I, I, I keep waiting for a team in the major leagues or the National Basketball Association or the National Football League to draft me as one of their athletes. I'm only 45. I mean, I got, I got some tread on the tires left, you know? I would love to be a professional athlete. Don't, not equipped for it. And when I was 16, that seemed like a huge hurdle. It seemed almost unfair. Again, in the scope of life, those are very small things. But as you walk with the Lord and mature, you realize those limitations that you have, those hurdles, those aches, those pains that you will never leave behind, those limitations, physical, mental, and otherwise, they aren't the things you discover that are keeping you from God's goodness. They're the things that are causing you to experience God's goodness. And what you saw before is a disadvantage and a what about. You begin to see as something merciful and gracious. That's faith. And that's growth. And God moving toward you in friendship to show you that. Secondly, there are persistent aches in life. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul says that he was given a thorn to buffet him, to keep him relying on the Lord. But God always invites us to talk to him about it. And then to ask for grace to rely on his sufficient grace. Do you ever need to do that? Lord, I know, you're, I know you say your grace is going to be sufficient for this trial that I'm going through, but I need grace to see your grace. I need grace to accept that your grace is sufficient. Would you give me eyes to see it? Would you help me with that? God's grace is always sufficient. And God will meet your needs. 
Abram had a pretty big what about, didn't he? God, you made a promise. Promise isn't fulfilled. How can I trust you? God says, come outside, though. Let's look at the stars. And by and by, God made good on his word. And Abram did have that child. And now you are children of Abraham, believe it or not, by adoption through the Spirit of Christ. Paul says that we're children of Abraham by God's grafting us into his family and gracing us. Could Abraham have ever envisioned when he looked into those stars that your name would be one of them? The things that God can do with a trial, the things that God can do with a what about, give those to him and trust yourself with him. And you'll start to see. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this passage in Genesis 15. I pray that you would help us now to look to you in faith. We've all got whatabouts. We've all got things we wish we could be or could have done. We've all got limitations that we didn't ask for. But Lord, you use those very things to accomplish your purposes in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you, to entrust ourselves to you, and that we would experience blessed friendship with you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name.